Hi, I'm Ryan Singer, and this is Shaping on the Go. This isn't a regular podcast series. It's more a place to share talks and interviews about shape-up and product development that might be interesting to you. Today, I'd like to share an interview that I did yesterday with Sebastian from Product Masterclass based in Munich. Sebastian invited me for a LinkedIn Live session, and the idea was that we would talk about the differences between Scrum and shaping. And it led to a really interesting discussion. So without any further ado, please enjoy. You know, and, and the thing is that, especially if you're working in kind of, um, kind of a more traditional kind of scrum type environment, there's not really a right time to step back and question, like, what is it that we are actually trying to accomplish? What is it that we want to make here? What are kind of options A, B, and C for very different approaches for what a solution could be? That's just not at all a part of the process. There's no space and time for that. All of a sudden, you're in a, I'm not sure what you call it there, but in the States, they sometimes call them grooming sessions, where you take a whole bunch of things that people want to do, and you try and kind of squeeze them into the next two weeks or figure out what goes into the next two weeks. And that's a very different conversation than you know, how do we actually integrate the skills and knowledge we have and what are the different interaction approaches or backend approaches, or maybe we use this library, maybe we write it ourselves. Like there's so many different choices and trade-offs to be made, but there's kind of no right time to do that in a, in a, in a standard scrum process. I, let's, let's talk about that uh, for a minute, because I mean, after all, we also wanted to talk a bit about, about scrum. Yeah. Um, First of all, one thing I find it like super interesting that you say um, in like a kind of more traditional approach and you mentioned Scrum. Um, just a fun fact, we had a comment under um, one of our like uh, below one of our videos um, today. And um, what, what he basically said is um, he would be happy if his company would even be adopting Scrum. So we, we, <laughs> we also have to face the fact that that. Um, at least, at least in Germany, um, you can do probably a whole lot worse than 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 Scrum in the sense yeah. that there's like but, a process at all. But that's also excellent. It means that there's less to unlearn. Uh, yeah. You know, there's more yeah. opportunities to even jump into something else. You know, so that's actually true. really cool. True, true, yeah. So what what I want to talk a bit about is um, what you call grooming or or refinement. Um, because I find this like super interesting when you say like there's no proper place to essentially challenge um, scope, turn it around, maybe also challenge it with designers and, and engineers. And what I'm wondering, do you think that's because Scrum is built the way it is or is it just because it kind of encourages that behavior, but it was kind of meant, meant differently? That's a good question. I think there's a couple aspects to this. So... On the one side, we could talk about how the Scrum process actually works and kind of what it encourages and so on. But there's a whole other piece to this. You know, there's very different kinds of work that have to happen in a product team or in a software company. There's the work that is, let's say, planned and strategic. There's the work where there's something that the company wants to do, you as the software maker want to do that has a strategic meaning for you. And, and it's something that you are going to do as a project on your own schedule. That is very different from the, what we could call the reactive work. 
something that is coming from a stakeholder, from a customer, from sales that has a lot of urgency attached to it. And, and it's somehow not on our schedule to decide when that work happens, you know, and there can even be strategic work that we want to do. Like maybe we want to do some kind of an integration with a partner, but because of interdependencies with the third party, we can't actually completely control the scheduling and the timing and say that this happens on our terms, according to our plan on our timeline, because you're going to have to wait for certain pieces to be done on the other side of that integration. So there's a whole class of work, you know, the reactive work, the work that has urgency attached to it, the support work, putting out urgent fires, integration work, where you are dependent on other people's timetables, where a ticket-based system which Scrum is a special case of, right, is a, is a great way to work and probably and it's the most appropriate way to work. And a lot of software companies, you know, when, when we look at this kind of from the product perspective, you know, when there are things that we want to do strategically, we forget about, you know, how much of the business and how much of everyone's time can be putting out fires and reacting to things, right? And I think we need to take this into account when we talk about process. There isn't a single process that will both serve the highly integrative, creative, trade-off making, project-based kind of work of how do we want to design this feature. That's, that's a totally different animal than this little atomic unit of work came in. This thing has to happen for marketing. Otherwise, they're going to be waiting for two weeks for no reason you know, for two hours of work, right? So I think in the beginning, we can kind of separate these things and say there's the reactive work, there's the work that's on other people's schedules, and then there's the project planned work that's on our schedule. So, you know, the the whole kind of scrum system is very reasonable. If you have a whole bunch of stream of little things coming in and you have to do the best that you can in a batch to do the most timely things as fast as possible, that's a really appropriate system. The problem is that when we start to extend that and try and use that for the really strategic work where we want to target some kind of an opportunity with the people we have, with the time that we have, with the kind of what's going on in the market, you know, then what we see is that Scrum simply was never designed to help us to really make trade-offs, for example, between the interface design and the back end or between different alternate approaches. This whole aspect of what we call kind of shaping the solution, it's it's simply not there. Scrum assumes that there are already units of atomic work that are meaningful. And the thing is that, you know, like our project work, it doesn't come like an IKEA box where there are a whole bunch of, you know, very carefully designed modular components that you can describe one by one, and they're all going to fit together in the designed way. When we're doing a new feature or some meaningful new development, something we've never done before, there are a whole bunch of unknowns there. We don't, we can't really forecast how it's all going to fit together and what we're really going to need to do. So in that kind of a situation, kind of shredding it apart you know sometimes i joke and call the scrum process a paper shredder for project work because it's like you take something that made sense as a whole and then you feed it into this machine and then now you have you know a hundred tickets but they're not integrated they're not interdependent anymore we're not making trade-offs or looking at the relationships between the work anymore we're kind of artificially treating it as if they are atomic units 
and they're all magically going to fit together in the end. So when it comes to project work, you know, that's actually, that's a place where Scrum really doesn't help us very much. That is actually super interesting because, I mean, that's where, where Scrum really claims it, it, it has its value, right? I mean, it's, it's about basically delivering value. And what, what you describe or what you describe now is that you feel that it's really good for this kind of maintenance and, and reactive work. Which and is still valuable. I would, I mean, I would still call it value, but I would say it's, uh, sure. it's, it's different than kind of, uh, that kind of product led, uh, those product led strategic efforts. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, the- but here's the other thing too, is remember the origin story of Scrum, right? Scrum came out of the agile movement and let's say the small a agile. Yeah. And the, the agile movement was created by programmers. It wasn't created by designers. It wasn't created by like product people. It wasn't about the integration of all of those different things. It was about the fact that programmers were constantly getting clients telling them, no, that's not what I wanted. No, that's not what I wanted. Actually do this instead. So there were changing requirements all the time and coming to the programmers. So if you're in that environment and you don't get to control the scope and you don't get to control the requirements, you are actually doing reactive work all the time, you know, and, and it's only in the last, what, 10 years that this whole kind of notion of product started to really gel and become something known, something that really exists in the industry. And now that this kind of product function exists, we are no longer in that universe where there are engineers or programmers somewhere who just get people asking them to do things all the time. But we, for example, in teams who are working in a shape up inspired model, We're bringing programmers and product people and designers together in collaborative work sessions to actually figure out what it is that we even want to build before we make the time commitment. That's, that's super interesting because what I would, I would, so be being the devil's advocate uh, here for a minute, (laughs) I would argue that you could also do that in a refinement session, but we have already talked about that. It's mostly not happening in refinement sessions properly. So The question is, is that because we use Scrum in the wrong way or is it because the framework, so I I know that I'm repeating the question, but I find Mm. this like super interesting now that we are talking about it. Is it, is it that, that kind of Scrum because also of the origin story you, you describe kind of encourages this, this behavior of basically, I want to say tailorizing development work. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to overdo it in the response here because I've seen some interesting cases. You know, I've seen companies who were fairly large, who had an engineering team in place, and that engineering team was doing Scrum. And those teams understood that they needed to somehow make more progress on meaningful strategic work. For example, we did a project with Autobooks based out of Detroit, and they did an amazing job without changing the way that engineering works, just by bringing one very senior engineer into the product team and much more deliberately and let's say more technically shaping the work that they were going to do before it ever went into this, uh, what you call the refinement session of Scrum. And what they were able to do in that case was basically they, they knew that they had to feed their work into this machine. 
you know, so they could treat that machine as a noise factor and say, this isn't something that we control, but we can give it a better input, you know? So what they ended up doing was they did more, let's say, upfront technical work to really understand how the bones connect and that there's a clear kind of viable approach in the architecture of this thing. And by doing that, they were able to basically feed in what then kind of became standard tickets and stuff like that. But it was much more deeply considered and it was considered in an integrated way with input from business and product and designers in the shaping sessions. So it is actually possible to, to treat these as separate things, you know, that we can do very integrative shaping and then feed that into a scrum process. Now, of course, we're not going to get exactly the same results as if we had an autonomous team who wasn't slicing things into tickets in the first place. But but that is, you know, that is possible. The other thing that I've noticed is that Scrum actually, we could call it basically a delivery process. And 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 it presumes, even in the word refinement, it presumes that there's already some input coming in of what the work is. Yeah. And what I've noticed is that whether you're a Scrum team or not, Actually, it kind of, in a way, doesn't even matter what methodology you use. Once a, a, a cycle starts or whatever unit of time, like some shape-up teams have three-week cycles, some have six-week cycles, sometimes it's a variable time box. And in Scrum, you have a two-week cycle most of the time. But whatever that time box is, when that time starts, it's like the gun going off at the beginning of a foot race. You know, and it's just kind of like you can't influence anything. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, the cycle starts and then boom, everyone is all over the place, you know, and it's in Slack and there's just, it's just the work is starting. And so I had a lot of actually, you know, there was a lot we were doing, for example, at Basecamp and there were things in the Shape Up book about how to work inside of the cycle and inside the delivery phase. And one thing that I've learned is that in a lot of, you know, from working with a wider variety of teams, it usually helps to actually begin by saying the delivery play, the delivery time box is the place where we have the least influence over the outcome, <laughs> really. And that it's, it's mostly about how we make trade-offs and how we actually shape what it is that we think that we're going, we're, we're going to actually go do in that time. And the more clarity we have, the more boundaries we have, the more we really understand what it is that we are accomplishing in this two weeks or this six weeks or whatever it is, that's actually where the big gains come from. I got to say, one, one of the things I really love about ShapeUp is um, the way how explicitly it kind of integrates engineering into, into discovery and, mm. and what, you, what you call shaping. I, I really enjoy that because this is also one of the things um, that we are both Thomas and me are very vocal about that discovery is basically completely missing in, in scrum and that yes. doesn't really help, um, um, to be honest. So, I mean, I know that it can be done around it, but it just doesn't help that there's no mentioning of it, um, in it. And it makes perfect sense. Um, you, you remind, reminded us of the, of the backstory of, of scrum just a minute ago. So let's, let's talk a bit about, about shaping and, um, And how how it can can help you already touched on that um, in terms of but maybe you can just just take five minutes and and explain the the, the kind of gist of it 
um, how it works because I'm, I'm sure um, some of the people who have joined um, already know what it is. Um, mm. if, if you haven't, you definitely should check out Ryan's book um, and um, definitely also um, check out his introduction into shaping. Um, we can just put that in the, in the chat a little bit later. But maybe you can just give us um, an, an introduction in, uh, into what it, what it actually is and um, how, how it can help you opposed to uh, a Scrum. Yeah, so uh, shaping is, is, is basically what happens between when an idea is raised or we think we should build this feature, we think we should build a calendar, we think we should build you know, the event database or the notification system. And there's this idea that comes up and then somehow that idea gets turned into work, you know, that has to be done. And maybe it turns into tickets in, in, in one environment or it turns into a brief in another environment or a package of shaped work in a shape-up environment, whatever it is, something has to happen. Some process has to happen there. And what you very often see what happens naturally is someone says, you know, we should add a... a, a you know, we should add an events layer to our internet system. So, and, and let's add, um, let's have a kind of an inner and an outer level of communication for people who want to know about the event versus people who are participating in the event. And someone starts, as soon as the, you know, the customer or the, the product person, whoever, whoever it is that has the idea, even says the idea, they are like covered in, 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 in solutions. You know what I mean? Like everyone is jumping all over them saying, well, we, we'll do this and we'll do that and we'll do this and we'll do that. Right. And naturally what happens is we kind of wrestle with this conversation until we feel that we have some clarity about what to do. And we kind of land on the first thing that everyone thinks we should do. And now it, it's somehow like, well, that's what we agreed on. So now we have to build what we all agreed on. <laughs> And, and so the, the scope gets fixed very early in a kind of chaotic, urgent discussion of everyone's just impulsive ideas, right? And then, and then we end up talking a lot about struggles with estimation, right? This is a famously difficult topic, estimation. And the whole concept of estimation is that we already know what to do, and all of our problems are about how long it's going to take. <laughs> and what we do with the idea of shaping is that an idea comes in where we are going to add this layer to our event system, right? Where we have inner, outer levels of communication for people interested versus the participants. And now we say, okay, are we really going to invest time in that? Yeah. And let's say we have a good business case for spending time on that. Then we say, okay, we are not going to just throw some work at people. We are going to try and understand how much time do we strategically want to spend on that? We call that the appetite in shape up. What's our appetite? Is this, is this something that we just need to somehow resolve in some way in the next two weeks? In which case there might be a lot of, you know, clever hacks or temporary solutions, or is this something that is, let's say, competitively meaningful for us or differentiating for us? And we would actually be very happy spending six weeks, or even maybe more than one cycle eventually building this thing out. So then we have a sense of the amount of time that we are willing to spend. We might also have other constraints like who's available to program right now. 
very often the person who we might want to be building this is totally up to their neck in some other thing somewhere else, or other people are going to be interrupting them for their time. So not only how long do we want to spend, but what is our capacity? Who's available? Who on the front end and the back end could we pull into a project in the near term? Then knowing that, we can start to play with different ideas of what the solution might look like. And this is before we've actually committed to building something. And this is like, I like to use the example of home renovation because it's something very familiar to a lot of people. You might have the very clear idea in your mind that you want to uh, change the, you know, renovate the bathroom. And it's, it's in a house which is 100 years old. And you could have the perfect idea in your mind of why it's worth doing it now. The plumber is available to, you know, all the the workers are available. You have budget for it, but you don't actually know what's behind the walls. And until you've actually opened up the walls and checked out what's going on with those old pipes, you don't know if it's going to be a a 10,000 euro project or a 30,000 euro project or whatever, because you you don't really know the what's involved in doing it, right? And of course, if it's something routine that we've done a hundred times before, then we are in a different regime. And this is not uh, the type of work we're talking about. But if we're building something that we haven't built exactly before, there are going to be all of these unknowns and all all of these kind of trade-offs waiting for us once we encounter those unknowns. You know, once you realize that, oh, that this is more complicated than we thought. Now we have to figure out, well, how much of the original project do we still want to do, right? Or is there a different way to do it? Or can we rethink what the problem is? So normally what happens is teams kind of think they know what they want, uh, draw a bunch of specifications or requirements. So maybe a lot of Figma drawings today is something what you would see. And all those Figma drawings kind of represent our imagination of what the new bathroom should be, right? Or the new kitchen. And then it's then only in the last moment when we think we're starting the project that it goes to the technical people and they say, no way. <laughs> this, our component system doesn't actually work that way. And actually we have a library that does this already and this isn't compatible with this. And the whole concept is, it, there's a lot of rework happening, you know? So, uh, and a lot of teams are actually just used to this rework as a part of normal life. And actually this rework, you know, when you're committed to going down a path, some Figma drawings were made, we're supposed to be building this, somebody promised the customer, it's already on the roadmap, all of that, right? Now there's a bunch of unexpected complexity coming up and where do those go? They become tickets. So we are also kind of drowning in our own unfinished work and the additional unplanned scope from the things that we tried to to plan earlier, right? So this is difficult. So the whole notion of shaping is that we carve out a work step. It's not a meeting, it's not coding, you know, it's actually a work step where when we have a raw idea, we think we need this new thing in the event system, or we think we need this new functionality in the calendar, then we get a a more senior technical person some, so someone who understands how the things are built, we have someone who understands the business case or why this is important, and we have someone who understands the interaction design, the experience side of this. 
And it could be that you have the unicorn person who is all of those in one. It could be that you have two of those in one. You know, there's different possibilities, but those skills are somehow present. And those people come together in a room synchronously for a very intense, maybe two or three hours. And by pushing and pulling and getting into the concrete details, the idea is to come out with a more clear kind of rough sketch of not only the interactions, but also the architecture of here is something that we have pushed and pulled on. And we have more confidence that this is something that is going to move forward. That is going to, we're going to, you know, put it into a time box and it's just going to start happening. It's not going to blow up with a whole bunch of complications. It's not going to come back to us with a whole bunch of unanswered questions, but we have actually shaped the work so that people know what to do. And it's going to fit into the time and capacity that we have to actually deliver. So what you're basically saying is that you kind of have, have this work block that is way more like that happens way earlier than a refinement would be because in a refinement, usually like the product manager would, sit down with the designer and like do these like super glossy Figma thingies have already showed it to mm -hmm. the stakeholder, to the clients or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it basically hits engineering and they're like, yeah, that's, that's super sweet, but we can't, can't really deliver on that. So what you're saying is that you are, you are basically getting before that even happens, you get like the right people in a room for an intensive session in order to figure out if what, like what the product manager was think, thinking about actually makes sense and can be delivered and talk about like the the basically what you call like what the appetite is so what like how much you want to deliver of it so did, did i get that yes right? yes and you know um if we think about the example of the bathroom renovation it means that we are not agreeing on the perfect color for the tile right uh if you want to have a perfect rendering of the final bathroom, that's a very different output than if you want to have a, let's say, a clear and precise schematic drawing of the where the wall has to be opened, where the pipe has to be moved, you know what I mean? Like these kinds of things. And so the result can be precise, but it's not hours and hours and hours of a designer's time also falling in love with the concept, right? So we differentiate between, you know, figuring out what are the architectural decisions that are necessary for the project to be successful versus what are all of those kind of details that can get worked out later once we're committed to the project and it's not going to blow up. So coming from an engineering background myself, I would say, wow, that's, that's absolutely fantastic, right? So, I mean, I'm, I'm a strong advocate for basically um, getting getting technical people into these processes and mm -hmm. into discovery very early. Yeah. Um, but how about, like, the design perspective? Because I can imagine that, um, because, like, one thing that a lot of people um, told me in the past was um, we have to think about what what is possible without knowing like the technical constraints at first so mm -hmm. that we can actually think kind of outside this this technical box and mm -hmm. i was wondering because i i could imagine that you have been confronted with this this argument before and i was wondering how you are usually responding to that you know 
all of this fits together very well. So if we, we could, there's, a, there's a micro version of this, which is kind of the everyday projects, and there's the macro version of this, which is kind of the big visionary reinvention and stuff like that, you know? But let's just start on the micro level. It's very healthy inside of a shaping session that someone who is, let's say, looking at the problem more from the perspective of the user experience says, but maybe there's a way. I, I get that there's maybe not a way today, but but could there perhaps be a way where we could do this totally different interaction, right? And because the clock hasn't started to tick yet, right? It's a it's a it's a very different conversation when we're talking about hypothetical work, right? The designer could have a totally visionary idea or a novel idea or something very creative, something that hasn't been done before technically. And the technical person might say, that seems hard, or we've never done that before. That doesn't mean that the technical person wins and we never do anything hard or we never do anything new. Another term, which actually didn't make it into the book, but which has become very important since I put the book out, is spiking. Spiking is where we are in a shaping session, and we're talking about maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. And an unknown comes up. We say, well, I don't really know how hard that would be. I don't really know if that's technically feasible or not. And we say, let's do a spike. How about you play around with it and see what might be technically possible by exploring a little and spend an afternoon on that. And then we'll come back for another shaping session in two days, right? So there's actually way more possibilities for that push and pull and for kind of digging into that kind of R&D work when you're not on the clock. And, and the thing is then, if you do that exploratory work before you, before, before you commit to the project, then when you're actually kind of on the clock and you're inside of that time box in the delivery phase, someone has done the due diligence to understand that there is actually some kind of a way to do this, you know? So that's a very, that's a very productive way where you basically get to have it all because you're creating different moments in the process for more exploratory work versus work that we're more confident that we can actually execute. When it comes to the kind of very big picture visionary stuff, there's a difference between we have a team that is going to become free in two weeks and we have to give them work to uh, we have something that we think is really important strategically for the company. And we would like in six months from now, to be able to start actually giving teams something to start building. So then we could take a six month period where we strategically decide to go into deeper kind of extended spiking of different kinds of R and D to discover what's actually possible and to really push the boundaries. So this is the false, this is a false contradiction, but it's a real contradiction. If you're inside of a scrum type system where all of the work happens, on the clock under the time pressure inside of sprint cycles, right? You need to carve out that separate space where we say, we're not in a delivery cycle right now, but we're shaping. And inside of the shaping time, that's where we can actually entertain things that are not possible because we're in a different space. We've carved out time for this kind of work. Wow, I have so many questions, so many more questions, <laughs> but there's also like a couple of questions in the chat already. So um, let me just put it out there. If you have any more questions, um, put them in the chat. 
so that we can um, go over it. Um, I got to say, this has been like really insightful so far. And um, I hate to regret, uh, regret to say that um, shaping or like uh, in general, uh, shape up is not, not part of the curriculum of the product masterclass yet. But um, after the conversation today, um, maybe we should make it part of it as an alternative um, method to not only like delivery, but also um, like a full-fledged delivery discovery mm. um, um, process. So, um, yeah, uh, in yeah. any case. We actually have a, we have a course called Shaping in Real Life that my wife and I created together. And in the beginning parts of this course, we actually talk about how you know, shaping might be a term that kind of comes from the stuff that I wrote, you know, but, mm -hmm. but actually everybody is shaping in some form, right? There is some way that the team is kind of working out what to do before actually making that commitment inside of the time box. Right. And so one of the things that's been really fun for us is to step back and see how can we just put different skills into place or, you know, different practices to help with that shaping that anyway has to happen in some form. Mm. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I put the link uh, into the chat. If um, you want to, you want to check it out, um, feel free. So let me go through the question. And so of course, one more thing, if you want to um, um, get updates on our LinkedIn lives, we're doing these quite regularly. So just um, uh, basically like our page, Product Masterclass. And if you are looking um, for either upping your, your product game or um, advancing your product career, definitely also check out the Product Masterclass. Um, and we have very regularly have um, people like Brian um, uh, with us for LinkedIn Lives uh, to share their knowledge. And again, um, thank you so much for that. So... Jan had a question. So he said, I know at Basecamp, uh, you do have these setups of a designer front end and a backend engineer as kind of a duo working six weeks cycle on a scope of work. How critical is it for shape up to have very small teams working on a scope? Mm. So I would say that it is a so I think there's two pieces to this. One is the question of small teams, and the other is the fact that the designer is always there. Um, I should, I think, speak to the designer part first. Most companies that I've encountered do not have enough designers to pair a designer with the programmers on every single project that's going throughout the duration of the project. Usually you have something that's more to the other extreme, like one designer for 10 programmers. So this is definitely a place where shape up as it was practiced at Basecamp is simply not going to work for a lot of teams. So we actually have a lot of interesting ways of dealing with this. There's a lot of workarounds from doing certain pieces of design up front in the spiking to actually identifying which aspects of the design are more like choosing the tile in the bathroom, which things are more like the 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 paint and the beauty and the layer on top as opposed to where does the wiring go and where do the pipes go and this kind of a thing and in that case actually there's a layer of interior design that can very very meaningfully happen on a almost on a kind of a ticket basis after a cycle of work has been fully built out there's some really interesting things that we're actually seeing with that um, but that's another topic 
about this small teams, I don't think that this actually is shape up specific in any way. I think that you'll find that if you try to give four or five people a technical task, that it's it's it just makes it more complicated. For software development, most things are better scoped down to something that two or three people can execute together. And uh, even, yeah, I really not more than that. You know, if you have more people than that, usually it means that there are kind of extended parts of the stack that you're trying to deal with. You know, you're not going to have four people all working on the same part of the same backend piece of code simultaneously. It's just not possible, right? Uh, and if you can untangle those into separate streams of work because they're actually not in the same part of the code, then it's going to be more productive to have a tiny team working on this piece of work with these clear boundaries and a different tiny team working on this piece of work over here with those clear boundaries as opposed to trying to put a bigger team together. I think that's, I think that's probably quite universal and not really shape-up specific. Super interesting. He had like basically one part of the question that I left out, but I think you already uh, scratched on that. He um, asked, what is breaking first when you scale to a product team, um, whether it's product manager, UX, multiple engineers of platforms? Mm. Yeah, so um, I mean, a lot of things, I mean, honestly, if you if you take the book as the one true way, many, many things will break for a lot of different companies because Basecamp had some very specific attributes. You know, Basecamp was bootstrapped. It had a high ratio of senior versus junior technical people. There were a lot of designers relative to the number of programmers. There were a lot of things there, you know. So there's going to be a lot of things in the book that don't directly map. That's actually why we ended up making this course, the Shaping a Real Life course. And a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last year and a half, two years has actually been about taking all of those things, which are kind of the one true way in the book, and turning them into separate practices that you can kind of adjust and tune one by one to, to make them fit. For example, if you have an existing organization or you talk about kind of scaling up to a size where you have multiple you know, product managers, one thing that you can do is you can look at those people that have that title, product manager, and you can roughly speaking, uh, put them into two kind of categories. There's going to be one category, which is in some companies is going to be more responsible for communication and ritual. And there's going to be another category, which is more responsible for deeply understanding the business problem and the customer needs and so on. In the case where you have a product manager who is mainly tracking communication and ritual and so on, their ability to contribute will actually diminish in an organization that becomes more and more following shape-up style way of working because there's less of a need for that. But when it comes to the product manager who deeply understands, who's kind of responsible for understanding what matters, what the customer is trying to do, what's going on with the business, how different priorities are competing, that person is super valuable in a shaping session. And we also talk about a work step before shaping called framing, where we actually are making the business case to spend time on something, right? How do we even make the decision that we should shape project X instead of project Y? So there is a lot that they can do there. And I talked about the shaping sessions with the technical person, the product person, and the designer. And here, the product person can be very useful. Wow, this is like... 
I think this is the topic in itself. So I, I could probably spend yeah, there's a lot of talk, talking <laughs> about it because especially like the, 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 there's always, I think in, in, in Europe, especially we have this argument about like a very like long standing argument about like product owners and product managers. And especially in the U S you, you, predominantly call them product managers what they are in uh, germany's uh, in germany you have a lot of people who actually have the title product owner and mm -hmm. they are like fairly often what what you describe as kind of communication centrals i, yeah. I usually, like i call them like requirements uh, translators mm -hmm. um because that's what what happens um a lot and i mean if you use product people like that you only get like one third Mm -hmm. the value out of them so yeah i um yeah i, I just that, need to that, add them because that, it kind of struck a nerve with me yeah yeah i mean that that role which is more communication and kind of ritual based is 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 of course useful when you have a lot of chaos you know and when you have a lot of disconnects right when you have the requirements coming from these people over there and they're not actually involved in the session when you design what to go do and the technical people weren't involved in that conversation there become all of these difficulties that that arise out of those uh disconnects those gaps and then of course when you have a lot of difficulties then you need help to manage all those and it makes sense that you would have a lot of communication work to be done you know and a lot of coordination and communication but the more that you start to integrate the the person who thinks they have a requirement and the person who knows what's viable to build and so on in shaping sessions and framing sessions and spiking sessions you will discover that the communication outside of those sessions is much much it's honestly a lot simpler and it's a lot more straightforward so so then you have this shift from the yeah from the person who is kind of herding all the cats uh to product is more about actually having the domain knowledge and the business understanding i have another one for you uh this is a little bit more controversial than the last one i would think so chantal um is, is not asking but stating sounds like dual track agile discovery plus delivery mm -hmm. so i think that's a very natural response when you hear this because if you look at it from far away they very much look the same Uh, the difference is that um, if you go into what is usually called discovery, I would say that it's hard to actually pin down, you know, what happens on on what happens on the two and three hour the two or three hours you have on the afternoon on Monday, and then what happens again on Thursday, and then like how does that become a project? I would say that there's not a lot of um, in the experience that I've seen, at least, the discovery tends to be a, a very big umbrella, this word, discovery. It's a big umbrella for a whole bunch of different UX practices and research things. And, you know, and, and, and usually, and I, I won't say never, but in most cases, it, technical people are not involved in that process. And, and if, I, if I'm really honest, I would say it's also because they don't have the patience. <laughs> because... Very often, this um, this what's called discovery can be so kind of open ended that it's it's not targeted enough, and the developers actually don't see really clear possibilities to contribute in those conversations. You know, um, for example, if in some discovery work, there's a lot of user research and there's a lot of talk about stories and journeys and personas and stuff like that, 
it can be that there's not a lot of cause and effect in the conversation. And in cases like that, there's a kind of missing step of, okay, we've learned a lot of really interesting things, you know, and, and, and there might be a lot of really good seedlings of projects here, but now still, how do we turn this into something that we can go do and finish in four weeks? Right. That, that, that is very often kind of missing in those processes. And so I would say you could actually have a dual track agile kind of process, and you could have a lot of that discovery stuff in place. And then still it's a question of how do we take all the things that we learned and bring them into a conversation, which is more focused about kind of what to tactically do in a smaller unit of time. So, so what you're saying is that the real valuable conversation that you got to have is about like, not, not necessarily about the scope, but how much time you want to spend on the problem and then let the team figure out the scope themselves. It's all valuable. It's all valuable. So very early wide ranging discovery is valuable. Uh, uh, you know, figuring out like, like the exact time and capacity and who's available to work on what is valuable. It's just that like, we have to come to a point where it all starts to, to close in and we're actually making the trade-offs. It's like, if you've ever had to buy something that you don't know how to buy, like if you, if you're buying a car for the first time in many years, or you have to buy like a, you know, you're buying like a, like a video, like a, like a DSLR that can take video and you've never bought one like this before. At first you think you're just going to go to the store and buy it. And then you get, you start comparing and you're like, Oh, like, how do I choose? <laughs> you know? So there's this whole, there's this really hard process of actually narrowing in on what are we actually doing? What are we actually committing to? You know? So the things that I'm mainly kind of trying to help with when it comes to this sort of shaping sessions and getting clarity around what it is that we're doing. It's all about like just that work step that somehow has to happen. I have another one now coming from shaping to the framing space. Uh, Frederico mm -hmm. is asking, is the framing space more related to jobs to be done and uncovering demand? Well, wow, that's, that's a very astute question. Um, to answer it, I would step back very briefly and say that there are kind of two sides of the product development universe. There's the demand side and the supply side. The demand side is where we try to understand people's lives. And the supply side is where we try to understand what we can build. And as product people, we somehow have to link these two together, right? If we, if we know what to build and we say, oh, let's make this button that does this thing. Well, we might be able to ship that. But if we don't understand how that would fit into somebody's life and what they're doing today and why they would do something different from what they do today, then, you know, we may find that after we ship it, it isn't used the way that we intended or people don't value it the way that we thought that they would, right? So these are, these are totally different kinds of work, right? On the one hand, everything that we build on the supply side is, is in a way kind of under our control, right? Because we get to decide what to do. And what people value and what people are trying to do in their lives on the demand side is a purely empirical question of like what is happening out there we don't get to influence that so uh these are two different worlds when it comes to framing framing is actually the place where these two meet 
So on the on the demand side, there's a question of what is going on in the world where someone is struggling with what they already have and we might be able to do something that would be better for them, right? So there has to be some struggle, something where people aren't satisfied already. And that creates some opportunity. Then there's also the question of, you know, how much will they value it? This is also coming from understanding their context to understand how how meaningful it is or how important it is. Then it's a question of, given our understanding of why people want this and what they're trying to do, how much time are we willing to allocate to this? What's the case that we would make internally to dedicating our supply-side resources to building something? So you see there's kind of a link there. So I would say that to the demand side half of that framing work, then for sure I would go to the job to be done kind of world to answer that work. And that's absolutely kind of how I think about doing it for sure. Great. I think I have a last one that, that uh, I just saw. So Nick, um, he's, he's saying a couple of things, but he's also asking something. So bear with me. It's going to uh, take a minute. So ShapeUp is clearly the result of years of practicing, adjusting, and tuning the methodology. And the handbook does a really good job conveying all the ins and outs to start adopting it into your, uh, into your own organization. But undoubtedly, As we all do, you gain new insights and learnings over the years. So I'm curious to know what sections you would add or adjust besides spiking based um, on the learnings you had from the moment the handbook was originally published until now. And he's mm -hmm. adding something else. Can we expect a second edition of the handbook anytime in the future? Uh-huh. So, I mean, there are quite a few things. Um, uh, the, the, the core principles are all very much intact. But when it comes to how to actually put it into place so that it works on a company-by-company -company basis, here there can be a lot of differences. So, for example, the book says six-week cycle with two-week cooldown. And what we've seen is that that is a very good fit for companies who are self-funded and who aren't under kind of strong external pressures but get to set their own course. If that's not you, then it can totally work to actually set time boxes on an ad hoc basis. Like we're going to do, we're going to shape a three week project. Then we're going to do a one week project. Then we're going to do a four week project. You know, this, so the, the length of the time box is actually not something holy at all. Uh, but the book might make it seem that way. Having a designer on every project will enable more possibilities and there's a lot of fantastic things that come out from working that way but it's not a requirement to do shaping shaping is actually about knowing who is going to be available and then coming up with work that is going to be meaningful for them given those constraints so if there isn't going to be a designer we still have to shape work that the technical people can go do that is going to be a really efficient meaningful use of their time so this actually doesn't depend on whether or not we have designers inside the cycles or not. Um, let's see. There's quite a few other things. The, uh, another big one would be the betting table. The betting table assumes that you have the luxury of shaping a variety of different things, and then you're going to kind of look at all of them and then pick one for the next cycle. And in many companies, that is not realistic, and it's not a good use of time either. In those cases, it makes more sense to be very, very targeted 
and say, here's a potential project. Here's something that customers are telling us about. Let's see if we can frame that. Then when it's framed and we say, "Uh uh-huh, we've made a good business case that this is worth pursuing. Basically, we could make the bet at that time and say, we're going to invest time in shaping this. And assuming we can shape it, we're going to give it a green light and go do it. So instead of a betting table at the end where you have a kind of portfolio of different pieces of shaped work, it can make sense in a lot of companies to be very kind of one by one. You know, this thing seems important. Let's see if we can frame it. Yes, we managed. Let's see if we can shape it. Uh Uh-huh, it looks good. Okay, let's go deliver it. The last thing maybe in connection to that is uh, this word pitch has caused so much confusion (laughs) because, you know, pitch sounds like you're trying to convince somebody, you're trying to sell something. And the thing is, if you've, when you've understood that shaping actually is more technical than the book might've made it sound, I think a close reading would, would still get that through, but if you really do the work of making the technical trade-offs and shaping, you're not just making a sales pitch in the end. This is something you put a lot of time into, right? So what we've understood is that it makes more sense to talk about shaping the work and then packaging what we've shaped, taking all of those scribbles and you know everything that's on the whiteboard or on the Miro board and then kind of formalizing that into a document that is going to survive time or survive the changing of hands. And we say that's a package. And then the kind of the spirit of a pitch of like, I'm going to try and make the case that we should go do this. This applies much more to framing. And there we actually now call the output of framing a frame. <laughs> so, you know, we, we, we kind of can eliminate this confusion by taking that word out. That would be one thing that if I could go back and just, you know, on the, on the, on the original text, it would be helpful to change that language. Got it. Yeah. I, I can see, I can see um, mm-hmm. why, why this, this, this might've been a problem for some people. Yeah. So, there, I know there's like so many more more questions out in the chat, but it is um, six already, at least here in Germany. And that means um, we have reached our time box for this event. Um, Brian, thanks again so much uh, for joining us. Um, this was, again, like a super insightful um, discussion. And um, I'm uh, pretty sure that a lot of people who joined today um, took a thing or two that uh, they can take home um, and think about whether they are adopting uh, a shaping for themselves uh, and their companies now. Um, you are the guest, so you have the, the last words. Is there anything <laughs> no, I would just, like to offer that? Yeah. yeah, thank you. No, I would just say thanks a lot because I actually really enjoyed it and also very interesting questions. And yeah, I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, for next steps, if anyone is interested in more, they can check out the website, feltpresence.com. If you're totally new to Shape Up, there's actually a 20-minute kind of overview video there called Shaping in a Nutshell that will give you kind of the core principles and some of the key ideas. And as I mentioned before now, we have the online course as well, Shaping in Real Life. And that's where we get into all of this new stuff of shaping sessions and spiking and framing and packaging and really look at kind of how to do it and how to tune all of these different steps and practices so that it can be something that's custom fit for your organization as opposed to doing it purely by the book. So you can uh, sign up for the waitlist there and we'll have probably another cohort 
coming in May, we're planning, or we'll do another group going through the course then. Perfect. So definitely uh, highly recommended. Um, I saw a lot of hearts and claps uh, in the chat. So um, I can see that people enjoyed it. And ah, we have maybe one other thing. Yeah. You have a you have quite a few in Central Europe in the audience, and uh, I'll also be speaking a bit in Europe in May. So I'll be in uh, Paris uh, on May 24th and in Madrid on May 26th, I believe. And those are both for La Product Conf. And uh, so it would be great to have people show up and to be able to meet in person and uh, and say hello. Perfect. So if you want to meet Ryan in person, uh, come to Paris, come to Madrid, and. Uh, Yes, again, thank you so much, Ryan. Um, yeah, thanks, for joining Sebastian. Joining us tonight. And uh, yeah, hopefully, talk to you very soon again. All right, take care.